Revolution. I'm your co-host, Katie Thompson. Here we share interviews with female and non-binary makers of all kinds from all over the world. I'm also the creator of the Women of Woodworking Project and Pen and Chisel, a monthly journal created to highlight the work and stories of underrepresented voices in craft. Today, our guest on Crafting Revolution is artist, woodworker, sculptor, educator, and community organizer, Leah Woods. Leah is an associate professor of art at the University of New Hampshire, where she teaches woodworking. She also works with the Women's Pop Program, teaching incarcerated women the craft of woodworking. She also maintains a personal studio practice and is a member of the New Hampshire Furniture Masters Association. Before we get to the interview with Leah, I'd like to make a huge shout out to our patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Lee at Lee Runyon, Annette at 513 Woodworks, Katie Thompson, yours truly at Women of Woodworking, Kevin at Lefty's Woodshop, Christy at Twisted Twine, Jeremy at Jeremy Speck, Sammy at Go Sam Lee, Rachel at Moody Makes, Bonnie at Tool Mom Bonnie and ToolMomStore.com, Laura at Oakley Soap Company, Brandy at Studio Abe, Lee at The Rainbow Carver, Ellen at Little Bear Furniture, and Ethan at Ethan Carter Designs. Make sure you go to Patreon and sign up to and support the podcast. All right, let's get to it. Thank you so much. Today we have Leah Woods joining us. She is the Associate Professor of Art at the Department of Art and Art History at the University of New Hampshire. She also is an artist and a sculptor herself, a woodworker, and has so many community-based initiatives and just wonderful work that she's doing for the community. Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Wonderful. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into woodworking in the trades? Yeah, so um, currently I'm an associate professor of art teaching woodworking and furniture design at University of New Hampshire. So I run the woodworking program here and I've been doing this, I started at UNH in 2007. And before that, I taught for three years, um, basically the same job at um, Illinois State University. And um, I love it, it's fantastic. Um, so I teach full time. I also have my own studio and I make furniture and sculpture and in, 20, in August of 2020, I bought a house and the house had a standalone garage. So over the last year, I've been doing something that I never thought I would do, which is trying to build my own studio space at home. And, and it's been a, that has been a really interesting project because that's been construction. And while I love technical woodworking, bent lamination and fussy fitting of joints and, you know, dovetails and, and veneer work and stuff like that. I, 
I was nervous that when I got into the, the place of having to do construction work that I might not want to do it. And then I would have, you know, bought this house with this garage and turns out it's awesome. And um, so with the help of my boyfriend and another friend of ours and my dad, um, we replaced the roof. We um, hammered out the, uh, the, the pre-existing concrete floor to make um, room for a new concrete floor, put up insulation, walls, um, electricity. We didn't do that ourselves. But that was just, that was a fantastic experience of, I think like even though I teach woodworking and, and I, I teach students, mostly beginning students, um, much fewer intermediate and advanced students. So even though I've been teaching uh, introductory students for, well, since 2004, I think I still surprised myself by realizing that when I directed my attention towards building my garage into a wood shop, that I could do it. And it's not that I didn't think that I could, it's just that I had never tried to do something like that. You know, we replaced the windows. And prior to doing that, I thought, I don't, I don't know how to do that. You know, like, how does one replace windows? And sure enough, like, there's, there's, there's sort of no difference in, in thinking about a sculpture or thinking about a piece of furniture, like, you kind of imagine the end result and you kind of, you lay out the process and it was exactly the same thinking about my garage. It's been exactly the same thinking about my house and, you know, doing work on the house. So that's been a really surprisingly uh, uh, fulfilling experience. It's, it's my first house. So I didn't know if I would love it or hate it. And I really hoped that I would love it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yes. Um, it, taking on a house project, you know, it's, it, it's a labor of love. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of people take, get in there and take it on. They think, oh, I, this is just too much. And, you know, of all, you know, all the great things you have going on too. It's, it's so funny to hear that you took on a house, you know, sounds like a complete shop renovation um, in the midst of all that, which is just wildly impressive. So I, I would love to know what originally got you into woodworking. You said that your dad helped you um, with the shop. Uh, what was your first like memory of woodworking? Oh gosh, I, um, woodworking was a total right turn for me. I had no experience, didn't learn anything growing up. It wasn't until after I graduated from college, I was living in Chicago and I was working in a, um, like a, a wings and things restaurant. And, you know, it was great, got free food. Um, but I just, you know, kind of thought this, this is not where I see myself continuing. And I had studied art history in college and I just felt like I was open to whatever. And, and so um, shortly after I worked in this restaurant, I discovered uh, an art gallery. And at the time it was called Orca Art, A-A-R-T. And I think it actually still exists online. 
And it was a, a gallery that specialized in the work of the Inuit and people in Alaska and Northern Canada. And the work that they made was very personal. Um, it was a lot of um, small carved stone sculptures of mothers and babies, or there were drums. There were a lot of masks that had um, human hair. And it, I was just kind of confused um, almost by looking at this work because here I had come from this background in you know, four years of college where I studied art history, Renaissance, Baroque, Rococo, like um, had gone to Italy and studied the masters, quote unquote. And I was working in this art gallery and I was so moved by the work. Like there was something about it that was so unlike anything that I had ever seen before. I don't know that I even knew how to art articulate any of that at the time. I just remember kind of being like, huh. You know, like, like just knowing that there was something about it. And, and at the same time that I, that I started um, working in this gallery, like I was, I was literally sweeping the floors, like I didn't have an important job at all. But just being around the work was really interesting. And so this was in 1995. And the first SOFA show opened up in Chicago, the Sculpture Objects Functional mm. Art. And, and so it was held, um, for anyone that knows Chicago, it was held at, at Navy Pier. So it was the end um, uh, auditorium space at Navy Pier. So you got to walk through all of these buildings as you walked into that space. And, and again, it, it was something that I saw in the paper that, you know, reading the newspaper, like actual newspaper. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting thing. I'll go check it out. Um, and there was a design school from New York that had given students Yugos, the cars, and they took the Yugos and they built sculptures out of them. There was one person that, um, that stood the, the full car up on its nose and recreated the facade of it out of bricks and turned it into a, an electric fireplace. There was someone else that took a car and made it a working shower. There was a confessional. I mean, it was just, wow. That was like the weirdest show I had ever <laughs> seen. Cause I never thought of, again, like with, with my art history background, while I loved it, I realized that it was pretty narrow in thinking about what material was, you know, or what it could be or where it existed. And so that was the show that I walked through as I walked into the gallery to see um, the sofa exhibit. And right when I walked in there, um, I saw the work of Wendell Castle and uh, Daniel Mack. Wendell Castle, um, I think most people will probably know both of them. Wendell Castle at the time had these, um, it was his body of work where he was doing really heavily carved, um, I think it was jellytone wood. And then he was painting it with this, this crackle paint. So there mm -hmm. was this just beautiful sense of layering and super heavy texture on the wood. And then there was Daniel Mack right next to him who had 
uh, chairs that were made out of tools. So a leg was made out of a hammer and then a chisel was another leg and a saw was the, you know, the backrest. Mm. And, and so again, it was like, like, like my brain was like pew, pew, pew with all of these different ideas about what art could be, what material could be, where it would, where it could come from. And, and right when I saw that sofa show, I had discovered that there was a lumberyard that was up the street from my apartment and they were offering woodworking classes. And for absolutely no reason at all, I thought, well, that sounds like a cool thing to do. So I signed up for one of these uh, six week set of classes every Tuesday night for two hours and, you know, bought my set of uh, five chisels, showed up. And it was me and all my memory is, is that it was a table full of old men, a table full of old men and 25 year old me. And, you know, if any of them thought like, honey, are you lost? Or, you know, if they thought anything at all, nobody said anything. Like I, I remember just sitting down at the table and being like, yep, I'm here yeah. or whatever we're going to do, just like you guys. And and so we were making a dovetail box in that class and and I had a piece of walnut and the, the walnut had a little band of sapwood along the top edge. And I didn't, I don't know that I even understood sapwood and heartwood. Um, I just remember, uh, sorry, I'm turning off my email. Um, I just remember looking at that yellowish color and looking at the brown color and thinking, that's cool. So I oriented the boards for my box where the sapwood was along the top edge. You know, so that was that was my woodworking knowledge when I walked into that show at Sofa and I saw the work of, of Castle and Mac. And I thought, huh, you know, so my box is pretty cool but these guys works are way cool you know so it was just it was one of those experiences where where I thought so if if I can go from where I am to where they are I I think that's a journey that I wanted to take and and so after that show um I started thinking about grad school which (laughs) uh ignorance is bliss often. And, you know, no experience, no portfolio, no nothing. You know, I thought, why not? That's you, you go to grad school to learn stuff, right? So I'll just go to grad school and I'll learn woodworking. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's wonderful. (laughs) No. Um, and resonates with me so much personally too. And as far as where I am with my own creative work, um, But that's really fascinating. And I'd love to hear that there was still kind of that communal spirit um, when you first sat down at that table as a 25-year-old. It it definitely took me back to the beginning of my career, pretty much the same age, and um, going to American Craft Council shows with my husband. And, um, you know, kind of, I I would actually have people actually say stuff to me. So um, a little bit different, but... um, very, very similar experience, kind of feeling like a fish out of water, but knowing that's also where you belong. And it's kind of like you're waiting on everyone else to catch up. So, or not even worried about it at all. You're in your your own little world. That's that's one thing that I really love about woodworking and, and craft and working with your hands in general is, is such a personal experience. And so 
I, I love hearing um, that journey for you. So becoming a woodworker and um, also a big fan of Wendell Castle and things like that, you know, how did you feel that your work progressed over the years? You know, eventually you became an educator. Were there any kind of like big influences that carried you through your creative work or was there something in particular that shifted you to education? Um, and how do you manage that balance, you know, creating your own personal work and also being an educator? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, that, God, I feel like everybody is doing that balance of, of learning, learning stuff and then translating it into the making. And I think one of the one of the things that I am uh, extremely grateful for is that I feel like my my teaching feeds my interest in my creativity for making work. Um, and and when I make work, I do it in a very um, uh, isolated environment. I, I like that. You know, I like to like get into my head. I can get deep in my head. And <laughs> you know, and stay there for a while. And so I like coming out for teaching and the socializing and the problem solving. I love problem solving. And, and I think, um, so when I went to grad school, I went to the Rochester Institute of Technology and, and that was um, just a, a fantastic experience. So because I had so much catch up to do when I started, they had originally accepted me, but said that instead of doing the program for two years, I had to do it for three. So I had to take a year of catch up and then I would be at a proper grad level. Um, well, uh, after my second year, when I was thinking, okay, now I have to embark on my thesis, I thought that, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, to, there's just still too much that I need to learn. And so I ended up actually pushing it out to four years. And so one of the, the interesting things about that whole experience was RIT at the time, they, they may not still be like this, were on the quarter, uh, um, what do you call that, schedule. And so we had 10 week quarters as opposed to you know 15 week semesters. And the 10-week quarter, they go by so fast. As a teacher, I think now, I think it would be horrible to teach that quickly because you're constantly having to basically present a project, speed your students up to finish it, present a new project. But as a student, what was really, at least for where I was in my development, was I was constantly given a problem, you know, design and build this and and then the next semester would be something totally different and the next semester or the next quarter the same and so I was constantly doing this um, design and build a wall hung shelf that incorporates a dovetail design and build a chair for this kind of environment and and I think part of my interest in wanting to push out for that fourth year was I really liked the process. I felt like I was really um, learning, like the way that it was presented was just what I needed. It was a lot of technical instruction. It was not as much 
kind of do whatever you want to do, which I think a lot of other grad programs offer, which is fantastic if you're at that, if you're already at that technical level, which I was not. So I needed somebody to say, you know, here's a demo on on dovetails. Now I need you to incorporate dovetails into your project. And, and so I think that in that, that kind of structured teaching environment, I really thrived. And so then when I came out of grad school, I kind of wanted to just keep on doing that. I wanted to give myself projects and, and problem solve and and so for three years after I finished grad school, I had residencies and, and, and that, that was really cool because my um, living expenses were pretty much zero, you know, so I could afford to make work and not sell it because I didn't have high rent. Um, I worked at a restaurant, so I ate there, you know, like, like I was able to kind of live extremely cheaply all in the name of like what what can I build now and what can I build now and and when I started teaching for a long time I taught kind of like that um, I taught the way that my grad school program was run just at a you know an undergrad level and have only in the last few years really started to to shift my thinking about teaching because of um, really nice conversations happening through the Furniture Society with other people who are teaching and just kind of recognizing where our students are, the role of technology, how the world of studio furniture and galleries and stuff like that is so different now than it was when I finished grad school in 2000. It's like, you know, it, it's like that time was 200 years ago. Um, but, but yeah, I love, I love teaching for the, for the way, like I'll see um, my students do things that in my head, I think, nope, that is not gonna work. <laughs> There's no, you can't make wood do that. And sure enough, they'll try. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work at all, but, but it, it's, it's really interesting to kind of watch them attempt to do something that when you know what's possible and what's not possible, you can self-censor. And, and so I have found myself kind of trying things that I, I think I might not have tried in the past because part of me is like, Maybe it can be done. Why not? Let's see. Yeah, mm -hmm. very interesting. Hey, makers, today's episode is sponsored in part by toolmomstore.com. At toolmomstore.com, you can find any and all tool based merchandise for all genders, all sizes. They've got mugs, they've got shirts. All kinds of cool stuff. I have uh, one of the shirts myself that has the uh, hashtag woodworker on it. And I also have a couple of the mugs that define what and who is a tool chick. So super excited with the merchandise that I have. I know that you will be satisfied as well. Um, and also 
great discount for those of you who listen to the podcast. At checkout, if you enter the code MAKERMOM, you will get a 20% discount off any of the merchandise that you buy. So that's just toolmomstore.com. All right, let's head back into the action. Wow. And um, you mentioned the Furniture Society. And uh, uh, that's a great segue because I was actually going to bring up, um, thank you so much for joining us for our affinity group meeting. I think it was last month. But uh, during the meeting, you mentioned a class that you are introducing. Um, I can't remember exactly what the name of it was, but I've, I've got to hear more about it. Would you mind sharing with us kind of what you have in mind for this course? Yeah, I think you're you're talking about the woodworking and feminism. Yes, yes. Okay, that's what I thought it was, but I didn't want to, I wasn't sure if it was a little bit more of the trades, but woodworking and feminism. Please tell, tell us all about that. <laughs> yeah, so um, this is a really, I, I think it's a really interesting idea. And, and one of the things that I, I think I'm sort of um, curious about is I feel like my trajectory as an artist, as a teacher, and then my interest in how woodworking can connect to other people are all kind of moving in this similar direction. And that wasn't something that I planned. Um, so in my, in my work, I, I have been um, interested and have explored uh, gender over the years. And I've done that more explicitly, less explicitly. And by explicitly, I mean, like I made a series of dress forms that were sculptures, um, human-sized sculptures, so five, six feet tall, that were all based on um, corsets and undergarments and, and um, almost as much about women's undergarments as men's armor and you know just kind of looking at playing with the human body and and how clothing can either give the impression that something's there or diminish the fact that something's there and and so that's um, what I think of as a more explicit way of thinking about gender but then I've also made a series of shoe cabinets where um, I had one that was a his and hers set. And I wanted to think about how I could very subtly explore how, how could something function for a man? Like, what does that even mean? And how, do, how does something function for a woman? Like, are there inherent differences? And so I just like thinking about who people are and what their needs are. And, and um, so, it, so thinking about gender, like kind of going like that a little bit in my work um, in my, and then in terms of my interest in how woodworking can connect to the rest of the community, I'm part of a group called the New Hampshire Furniture Masters Association. And when I first moved to New Hampshire in 2007, I joined this group in 2008 and very quickly learned that they had this really cool program called POP, Prison Outreach Program. And it was started in 2001. The, the now retired Supreme Court Justice Kathleen McGuire in New Hampshire, um, at the time she had been seeing a lot of recidivism in her courts. And so she was seeing the same young men come in repeatedly. And so, 
she started thinking about how, you know, like, how can we break the cycle? You know, what, what does that mean? What do people need? So she reached out to a couple of the members of this group and she said, hey, would you guys be interested in coming into the men's prison in Concord, New Hampshire, and teaching them woodworking classes? They already had, like a lot of men's prisons, they already had a full outfitted wood shop because they did um, jobs for the state. And she said, you know, would you be able to take a, a, a small group of men and, and actually teach them fine furniture, you know, not just like um, a, a run of 500 birdhouses or something, but like, like, could you pull them in and get them to sort of care about what they're working on? And maybe this could be a helpful way to kind of break whatever that kind of cycle is. So um, wildly successful starting right from the beginning in 2007, um, we opened up a program at the men's prison in Warren, Maine. Same thing, um, really successful. And so naturally, when I heard about this program in, uh, I guess it was, I think it was 2009, I thought, perfect, bingo, like this is it. Um, at some point in my life, somebody, I heard somebody say, the best way that you can make a contribution to the world is to do something that you want to do and, and to, to offer that or to share that or something. And I thought, cool, I love to teach. I love woodworking. I would like to, to share this and see if anybody would be interested. So I called the, the women's prison, which at the time was in another town in New Hampshire um, called Goffstown. And I promptly called up and I said, hi, my name is Leah Woods and I would like to come teach in your uh, wood shop. And, you know, of course there was silence on the other end with someone going like, what? <laughs> um, so that was 2009. Fast forward to 2018, during that time, um, the women had, the um, women inmates had filed a lawsuit against the state dating back to the mid nineties, I believe, um, saying that their facilities, their educational opportunities, everything was not comparable to what the men had offered. So that prompted a move, the construction of a new building and the move to this new building, which currently now is housed right next to the men's prison, also in Concord. So we toured the facility in 2018. And um, then with two other women, Mary McLaughlin and Lynn Zemanski, the three of us are the um, organizers of this program for women, we started fundraising, we got a huge amount of um, positive response, like everybody that we talked to about this thought it sounded like an awesome program. Um, Lynn and I put together a 12-week curriculum. I was scheduled to teach my first class on Thursday, March 18th, 2020. And on March 13th, I got the notification that the prison had shut down because everything had shut down. Mm -hmm. And so that was March of 2020. So we pivoted to create online content because all of the women, this was news to me, 
all of the women in the prison, there's about 124 of them, I believe. They have iPads, so they can watch content on their iPads that the, the DOC makes available or the prison makes available. So we created woodworking content um, to be uploaded to their channel, thinking that, you know, that could initiate some interest. And I, I finally was able to start teaching my first class on October 27th, 2021. Wow. So I taught one 12-week course already. And then I'm a little more than halfway through the second 12-week course um, right now. Wow. And, and so I guess that was sort of a long-winded way to, to talk about the, the women and the woodworking and feminism course. Um, and I guess where I am right now is I, I feel like I'm not sure yet how to develop this course, but I feel like these things are connected. And I feel like there are interesting conversations that could happen around them. And um, and so I've thought about everything from when I go into the prison weekly to teach the class, could I bring a student in with me? And that student could then act as like a TA or um, could there be some kind of a project exchange where the class that I teach starts a project um, and then they hand it off to the women and then maybe the incarcerated women do the same thing for my students. So um, yeah, it's, it's I'm, I'm really interested in, in trying to figure out how to make this thing happen because I feel like all the parts of this course are there. I just don't quite know how to thread them in a way that make sense or is cohesive or or organized just yet well it makes sense <laughs> just hearing you describe it just hearing you describe it and um yeah it sounds i mean how could you better develop a course than with you know real research i mean that's that's really what you're doing yeah. here in in um working with these women in the prisons and then also um, what a valuable experience that would be if you were able to bring a student in as a, a TA, you know, and experience that um, so much to learn on on both sides. And so, wow. Um, and that's, you know, that was kind of my next question was about your uh, about the pop program, but um, really overall, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable what you're doing and, and the opportunities that you've seen and, and created for other people through this. Um, I hope, I'm so glad that you're able to, to get back into the prison finally. And, and um, I, I would love to hear long-term, you know, how has this, you know, benefited the women that have taken a part of this? Um, I, I really just want to take your class as well. <laughs> I don't know how we'll do that. Um, but wow, that's, that's just really amazing. So um, in listening to your story, it sounds like you spent a lot of time in Illinois before you came to uh, New Hampshire and in New England. Was it uh, a job as an educator that initially took you to uh, from Illinois to New England? Um, you know, it's kind of a woodworker's haven. I would love to hear what attracted you to the region. Yeah, <clears throat> um, actually, so when I was growing up, my dad was in the army and, and I moved around a lot. Um, and then when I went to college, 
I just kind of continued to move around and after grad school looking for opportunities where I could have a free studio space or uh, a studio living um, situation that caused me to move around also and like you I don't know what that has to do with my trajectory and my interests and stuff like that but there's there's something about moving around interacting with different people um, listening to different accents I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by accents like like just kind of understanding how people in different situ situations work and operate and what their interests are and and so when when I was applying for jobs like like everybody knows who has applied for woodworking jobs there are just so few and fewer now so when I was applying in 2003, there were four that I applied to throughout the country. Um, then in 2007, I think I only, this UNH was the only job that I applied to. And I think I was fortunate in that um, I had the, I had the interest in moving, you know, that didn't, I, I didn't feel tied down. I, I, until I moved to New Hampshire just recently, um, I bought my first house. So, so I, I think that without meaning to, I was kind of keeping myself a little bit um, loose, <laughs> loose and fast and free um, to, <laughs> to be Love able it. to um, just be able to take advantage of opportunities and and weirdly when i moved to new hampshire like every place that i've moved um basically from i was born in hawaii and now i live in new hampshire and every place that i've moved since then at least as you know starting as a teenager i thought well this is cool you know um i like this place but we'll see you know we'll we'll see where life takes me and and i moved to new hampshire in that whatever that feeling was it just went away and um and so that that was sort of interesting and surprising very interesting and uh thanks for for sharing your journey i think it's really hard especially um for emerging artists or people that are just getting started to find their place you know figure it out you're kind of um, if you've done some school or some residencies, you know, you're figuring out your own voice and then also where you want to spend your time um, making. So it's lovely to hear a perspective from someone that didn't necessarily, you know, find one spot and stay there in their workshop forever and ever. You've really gone out and experienced, um, it sounds like the entire country, literally from <laughs> coast to coast. So, and I can only imagine that has been a benefit to you as an educator, um, and then also, you know, with your, your course, and then of course, as an artist, we're, we're constantly drawing from our surroundings and our experiences and the people that we meet. Um, so that's really remarkable. And I love learning this about, I guess, the cultural, cultural aspects of New Hampshire and kind of the area that you're in. Um, and I, I like to hear that it is a place where they're wanting to invest in everyone, even those um that are in prison and you know giving them opportunities and and that kind of spirit i think that's probably another reason why a lot of woodworkers and tradesmen 
um, or tradespeople are attracted to the area. Um, woodworking is kind of like a great equalizer. So it's really mm -hmm. beautiful to, you know, hear that there are folks out there that are going the extra mile, you know, people that are typically forgotten or seen as, as not deserving, you know, um, I personally believe everyone is, is deserving of an opportunity to have a fulfilling life, you know, regardless of their choices and circumstances. So um, I really commend you and your community for doing that. And I think that's a, a great model for others to look at as well. Um, woodworkers, community organizers, anybody just wanting to make a difference. Um, and it's, it's just really inspiring for lack of a better word um, to, to hear what you've managed to accomplish. Um, I'm also wondering when you sleep. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, it sounds like you have a lot of things, but um, your, your drive and your determination is very palpable. Um, and I'm very moved by that. And it's just incredible to see all that you've been able to accomplish, um, you know, and, and still have a personal life, still develop yourself yeah. as an artist, still be able to go within because there is, like you said, going into those deep dark places it, it takes a while it, it takes a while to get there and then once you get there it takes a while to get out sometimes and um you've been able to keep up with the fast pace of the world and everything going on while maintaining that so um thank you well, today's episode is sponsored by athena outfitters athena outfitters is a quality workwear brand for hardworking women that sells everything badass beauties need to get the job done from work boots to basics. They curate the toughest essentials made to help you perform. Every piece is handpicked to seamlessly slide right into your daily lifestyle from rugged and roguish weekday wear to effortless weekend flair. You can fill your closet with gear that can do it all. So for Christmas, I ordered my wife like a very nice pair of slippers from Athena Outfitters and she loves them. Loves them so much that she has accidentally gone to the gym and the grocery store in them because they seem to never leave her feet. So definitely a place to go check out, go get the goods that help you not only out in the shop, but just in your daily uh, work around the house and outdoors. As a listener of the podcast, you can go to Athena Outfitters website and use coupon code M. M as in M&Ms, 15 for 15% 15 off any purchase. So again, you go to athenaoutfitters.com and use the code MM15 and get 15% off of your purchase at checkout. Well, the um, as far as the POP program, I could not be able to to get in there and teach without the help of Mary and Lynn. They have been phenomenal in um, helping me figure out how to create the curriculum, um, navigating the state legislature, the um, communicating with the warden, the commissioner. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like, I don't know, because I think it's still too soon to kind of understand my own feelings about COVID and what that that's what that's brought out in terms of how it's changed my thinking about my priorities or what I thought my priorities were or something. But, you know, I've only been in the prison now since October. So that's what, six months, maybe. Yeah, um, but God, it it has been 
really eye-opening. And, and I would have said before I went into the prison that I was, um, you know, a really very consciously eye-opened person, you know, like I, I thought that, that that's how I was. Um, you know, I do my due diligence and read the news and stuff like that. And yet, you know, um, working in the prison, I don't know that it's, it's illuminated my own prejudices or, or assumptions, but maybe it has, um, because I've been, so there were six women who were in the first session that I taught all six of them signed up to take the second session. And then I had five new women. So I have a total of 11. Um, and one of the things that just kind of blew me away, not because I didn't think it was going to happen, but, but because I think that inmates and prisons, prisoners, corrections officers are painted in such a narrow way that, you know, they, they look like one thing, they act like one thing, at, at least this, I think I'm realizing that that's how I thought. And, and so the women in my class in the first session, they were attentive, they were, um, they paid a lot of attention to the work that they were making. I started out by having everybody carve a spoon, and, and talked a little bit about wood and wood structure and hand tools and stuff like that. Then we moved into making a box. And almost everybody, I don't ask the women personal information about themselves. Um, they talk among themselves. And so I hear little things here and there. Um, but almost all of them have children. And almost all of them are making their spoons or their boxes and dedicating them to their kids or to their moms. And, you know, so they're wood burning um, the, their family members' names or images that connect to them. And so it's, it is so moving, you know, to, because I'm, 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 getting the sense of how long these women are incarcerated for, how much long they, how much longer they have left. Um, and, you know, one story that will probably always stick with me is that one of the women from the first group, um, she attended maybe the first three classes of the second session. And then she told me that she probably wasn't going to return because she was being released. And, and I said, you know, cause I'm still trying to figure out like what I can say and what I can't say. And so I said, <laughs> released, like released, released, you know, like to go out there. And she was like, yeah. And, and then she starts telling me about how she had been falsely imprisoned for five years. And, um, you know, I mean, I suppose you take everything with a grain of salt, but I thought, you know, it's not like people aren't incarcerated for, for things that they have not done. And I haven't seen her since. And I asked the next class and they said, yep, she was released. And, you know, so just thinking about, I, I've just started to think a lot about what does it mean to be incarcerated? What does it mean to do something that, that maybe is 
um, wrong, bad, unlawful, um, I don't have the language, you know, where there, there are real victims to a crime, how does that person then um, continue to live their life? Is there a way that they can ever kind of I, not get past it, but learn from it? it, it it's just been a, um, a really interesting learning experience about do, if everybody got um, identified by the worst thing that they ever did, what, you know, what would I be like? You know, what would people know me for? And so, so it's pretty heavy. So to your question, like I sleep pretty well because I think I'm so emotionally <laughs> exhausted by the time I get home that I'm like. <sighs> yeah, that's, that is just, um, it, it's really a beautiful example of, you know, we think we know things about life and about people and about situations. And we associate these meanings and values to these things that we see. And um, just uh, your experience is a great example of there's so much more, you know, behind these layers, behind these things that we've, you know, kind of constructed in our minds and how we view people. Um, and people's worthiness, how we view our own self-worth. Um, it's, it's just really, um, I'm very moved by the, the stories and I loved hearing that they were dedicating um, those to their family members. And I mean, they, they are human beings with families and loved ones and you know, emotions and uh, just like we are. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, I, I really hope that people will listen to this and start to challenge the stigmas that they have in their mind of, you know, what what do we consider right and wrong and how we view people in general, um, but especially those that are incarcerated um, and, you know, um, kind of losing my train of thought here a little bit, but uh, you sharing your experiences, you know, we're not able to see behind those closed doors. So I think that's another reason why those stigmas tend to flourish. Um, but by you being willing to go in there and then come back out and, and talk about this work and continue to do that work um, will have a very powerful effect, a very powerful ripple effect that I don't think, um, you know, we'll see. But just like you mentioned about the, the prisoner that was released, you know, I'm sure that's, so, you know, something we'll think about what kind of ripple effect did this class have on her before she was released? You know, what did she gain from this? You know, did it give her confidence before she went back out there? Because that can be a, a very difficult thing to do. Um, so thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for, for coming on here and, and sharing this with us. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, one more question just to kind of loop it back in there. Um, in the midst of all this amazing work you're doing as an, an educator and you know uh, organizer and community leader, you are an artist. You have your own feelings, thoughts, ideas, you know, to express. Um, what are you working on right now? What's what is moving you to create in your own work right now? So one of the things that I have been thinking about for a long time, like, like a few years, is I like, I like technique. And which is, feels weird to say because um, that it's so broad, but 
like I look at different things that I do and like some of it sounds really um, silly, but like when I go to the gym and like I look, I like to go to the gym and um, lift weights and, and I take classes. And so I like to think about like what, what is the proper way for posture or how, how are you supposed to hold your legs or your arms? Um, I love to dance salsa and it's the same thing like I love to I love to watch my teacher and watch exactly how she holds her body how she holds her arms you know like how how she turns her head and 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 so that carries over into woodworking and the technique of woodworking that I have just not gotten enough of um, is bent lamination and and it's something that I learned it in grad school, of course, but then um, I finished grad school in 2000 and it wasn't until 2005 that I took a workshop at Anderson Ranch in Colorado and the class was called, uh, it was like all things not square, uh, coopering, bent lamination, coopered bent lamination, turning, et cetera. <laughs> And, and I went to that workshop and it just, you know, it was like one of those things where you come out of it, not the same person that you walked in and, and just about everything that I have made since 2005 has incorporated bent lamination. And, and so I started making molds and I would make um, two-part molds. I made a big coffee table at one point. So I have like big five foot two-part molds. I have one part molds because I have a vacuum bag. Um, and I would, um, with each project, I would make new molds and I would um, think, you know, not throw them away when I was done. Cause I would think, well, you know, surely this is a beautiful curve. Surely I can use this again. So I would put it away on a shelf thinking that I'd come back to it. Well, you know, now it's 2022 and I've um, realized that I have about 25 different molds with 25 different curves. And so now for the first time, I'm pulling those out in part because I have my studio space that I'm building in my garage and I don't have any machinery yet. And so I, I set up my vacuum bag and I've just been making um, bent lamination after bent lamination using all these different molds. So I'm collecting all of these curves and, um, and I want to explore putting all of these curves together. So that's kind of, um, that's the where the technique is leading me and what's interesting kind of about how all these things feel like they they sort of meet up in a roundabout in my brain is the um, teaching in the women's prison the facilities are are they're sort of non-existent like we we work in a classroom we don't have a wood shop we teach that classroom is used for cosmetology um, during the daytime and then at night it's woodworking you know and of course <laughs> naturally so um we have you know plastic laminated tables 
um, no vices, no, like nothing that you would assume would be in a wood shop. So we've had to do so much on the fly and the women, you know, they, if they're bothered at all by the lack of proper woodworking supplies, tools, equipment, et cetera, have not uttered a peep. You know, they just, at the end of every class, they're, thank you so much. This was fabulous. See you next Wednesday. And so having to, having to be so, um, willing to be like, okay, uh, we can't do that this way, which is how I would do it in a proper shop. We've got to like figure out how do we make this cut or bend, like we've bent veneer. Um, we've done all sorts of technical things that at first I never would have thought possible. So I think that that flexibility has um, migrated into my teaching and it's also begun to infect my studio work in allowing me to do things where I feel like that's kind of crazy, but who knows, maybe it'll work. Very so, cool. Yeah. So it, it's, it feels good to feel like these things are connecting in a way that I think in past years, I felt like they were all connected in some way, but I just wasn't sure how. And now I think I'm beginning to see a little bit, not that they need to connect, but I think I'm beginning to see a little bit more of a thread of, I don't really want to live a compartmentalized life. I want to live an integrated life. So I, I want the things that I do to benefit each other. So I think I'm seeing a little bit of that, which is, it's just cool. I like it. Very wonderful. Yes. How you describe uh, making the bends and um, just the shapes and then also how you referred to the different facets of your life and how they fit together. Um, I, I can see the parallels and the inspiration in that for sure. And I too, I don't do a lot of bent lamination, but I had steam bending. That was kind of mm -hmm. the same thing for me. I was like, oh, I can make wood do this, you know, like instead of that, maybe this will work. Um, so yeah, so that's really wonderful. Well, do you have any upcoming shows or anything or are you just kind of making to make uh, right now? The, this summer, the um, New Hampshire Furniture Masters group is gonna be putting on an exhibition where we're gonna be working with community members and e each of us is going to make a new piece. So I'm trying to figure out how my weird, super thin bent lamination <laughs> thing can turn into a proper thing. And, and now that, that my shop at home is getting to the point where I can continue to make work, I'm, I'm hoping that I can start making work in a more cohesive way. And, and then think about maybe putting a body of work together for a show. That would be, that would be great. Yes. You're going to love having the in-home shop. That's, that's where it's at. <laughs> I'm not mm -hmm. going to lie. I mm -hmm. love that. I love it. So that's what um, I hear. <laughs> Although I apologize. I can hear my father-in-law mowing outside and I guess like the dander allergies, something just like hit me in the middle of that so I appreciate you uh riding through that with me but um 
but that is another thing you know the only thing is especially with our dogs is the the dust and the sawdust you get really used to it but um you are vacuuming a lot but <laughs> it's worth it it's worth it <laughs> so well awesome well are you on instagram have a website how can people uh find you get in touch with you maybe see some more of your work yes actually both um my website is leahkwoods.com um kathleen is my middle name and my instagram is at leah kathleen woods wonderful well leah thank you so much for joining us thank you for all of the great work that you're doing and i cannot wait to see what you build organize sculpt who knows what it will be next <laughs> well thanks thank you for giving me a chance to talk about this stuff it's it's always fun sometimes to talk about things because it helps me figure out what I actually think about things when I have to put them together in words that make sense. <laughs> I, I, I know what you mean. Sometimes I have to say it out loud or, or write it down. And, and I always joke, one of these days I'll get my life together, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Leah. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into our interview with Leah Woods. I will include the link somewhere to follow her in the show notes for today's episode. If you don't know where to find the show notes, check out the podcast app you're listening on. In the podcast description, there should be links there, or you can find it in the description box down below if you're on YouTube. You can also head to freemanfurnishings.com forward slash podcast and find this week's episode and past episodes and links there too. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Crafting a Revolution. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow. Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. We sincerely appreciate the support. Thank you again for tuning in. Let's go craft a revolution. <laughs>